0: I got connected with her little sister. This sounds ominous in some weird way and probably was. Her little sister was going out to this club Twilo in New York. She invites me to go with her and their crowd. And there's going to be some ecstasy there. And I've never taken it. I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. I've never danced in a crowd. I'm scared of how to dance. I'm scared of being laughed at. For years, I told people I wanted to go clubbing. That was actually something I, I thought of, but didn't get to mention of not heroes, but some, role models like New York in the late 80s and 90s. I knew about tunnel and limelight, places like that. And I had friends who would go there, but I would never get to go. I guess all I had to do was ask, but I never did. When I would express wanting to go, people always say, oh, you wouldn't like it. I never got that. I was like, of course I would like it. But I guess they saw a scientist that would, I don't know what they saw, but they thought I really, I think that they really were doing me a favor by saying you wouldn't want to go. I get invited. I go. Now, another thing, I ascribe this to my dad, but. I think actually over the years I've recognized, I may have picked it up from him, but I think a lot of people have this, which is an accounting of, if you work hard, you should get a reward for it, but you shouldn't get a reward unless you work hard. And so the work and the fun have to balance each other out. And also I learned about ecstasy that it was the opposite of addictive. What I learned is that eventually it stops working. I had a fear of being becoming addicted. I wouldn't want to take something that was addictive. And so I understood that this was something that would not be that. <laughs> Hi, this is Josh, and this is The Joshua Spodek Show, formerly Leadership in the Environment. I still bring you leaders in the area of the environment in the form of leaders and role models. Everyone treats stewardship like a burden or a chore, deprivation, sacrifice. So did I until I actually tried it seriously. It is a joy. Everything about it. We're here to share that joy. Meet amazing world-renowned people from all parts of life. Hear about them, what the environment means to them, and hear most of them find something meaningful to act on and then to share their experience. Why? Because stewardship and acting to help others for something greater than all of us creates about the greatest feeling humans can get, as does fresh air, clear water, delicious food, and clean land. That's what we're bringing you. This episode covers a few big experiences that led to my dedication and intensity, stuff that people ask me a lot about, starting from sports, my relationship with my father, acting lessons, various other highs and lows. The very intriguing stuff about drugs, which is in the title, that comes about two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of the way through, but it builds up to there. Since recording this episode, I've asked a bunch of people about their thoughts on sharing about drugs and taking them. I guess I'm behind the times that I still think that sharing, doing something illegal was a problem, but everyone, every single person I talk to talks about how normal it is to talk about, citing Michael Pollan, Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, Snoop Dogg, everybody. I don't know what's wrong with our laws, that we're making something illegal that everybody does and thinks is totally normal, but that's a whole other issue. Dove started this conversation by asking me about my childhood when I always felt like I was on the outside looking in, wanting to hear from others what to like. I didn't know, I didn't have a sense for myself. Early sports teammates led to a couple experiences that led to my dedication to sport and life. So you'll hear some things that made me really get into stuff, learning not to skip games or skipping practice or not getting playing time in a big game, how that led me to taking competition very seriously. And for me, com- competition in some cases means winning, in other cases means exploring and discovering your potential and reaching it and sometimes passing it, which is something that's very important to me. I think I do that a lot. I try to do that a lot. Eventually, I evolved through those transformative experiences to the top of some fields, but still never developed that killer instinct that you know people who Michael Jordan right now is in the news, you know, always want to win. But I would still explore my potential and reach what I could. I talk about my relationship with my father as a big part of guiding my leadership direction and practice to compassion, empathy, making someone feel understood, and support things that I felt almost completely lacking growing up. I share, following from that, why I love teaching and coaching leadership, at least some of the reasons, to enable people to do for others what I wish were done more for me. Anyway, let's listen to the conversation. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Dove Barron. You probably listened to part one. Here's part two. Dove, take it away. Hey,
1: thank you, Joshua. And thank you for tuning back into a very different episode of uh, Joshua Spodek's Leadership in the Environment. This show is about the environment that has created Joshua Spodek, PhD, uh, academic, leadership guy, author, environmentalist, and a whole bunch of other things. And in the last episode, we talked about social awkwardness. We talked about geekiness. We talked about their journey to academia. And we've talked about how the school of pickup artists had inadvertently shaped and formed much of the skill set needed to become a great leader and a leadership teacher and a coach. So we're going to pick it up where we left off last time. We talked a lot last time about Joshua's journey from being that uncomfortable, awkward, and lacking intimacy sort of young man into going out into the world and exploring and and learning how to be. But I want to sort of jump back in time a little bit more and go because, as I said, we are formed by our environment. So. Take us back. What's the age that comes to you when I say, talk to us about your teens? What is that the is that the late 70s? Is that, you know, what's the milieu?
0: Teens would be high school, central high school in Philadelphia. So that would have been, I think, 84 to 88. And some into college too. Because I started college at 17 years old. So actually, there's a couple of years of college there, and I, there's a year in France in there too.
1: Okay. So That 84 to 88, that four years there. Let's sort of look at that for a minute. Who were your heroes? Who were you looking at? Like, you know, so for me, I'm older than you. So for me, you know, my heroes were Martin Luther King. When I was 10 years old, I have a vivid memory of Martin Luther King. I can remember Muhammad Ali being on Parkinson in the UK and being like, wow, this guy's amazing. He was rapping. We didn't call it that, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, He was amazing. There was Bruce Lee, who was not just a martial artist, but a a walking philosopher. You know, um, there were these many childhood heroes who were not necessarily stars and all the rest of it, but they were massively influential. I mean, even my father talking about Winston Churchill. So there
0: was these people. Who were some of the heroes of your time? Muhammad Ali has become a huge hero for me now, but at the time, I kind of knew of him. That was a little before my time. So, I mean, Gandhi was a major figure. My father studies the history of third world urbanization with a specialization in India. And so Gandhi was a major figure. I really love the Beatles and John Lennon. Music has not been a big deal for me. Of course, I love music, but I remember wanting to be a guitar hero, but learning guitar, nothing stuck with music. But nonetheless, I really like the Beatles. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, who was the Maybe. musical influences of that time for you? There were, I don't know, like, like the 70s bands of... Oh, no, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I've gone back too far. Because like, I went to like Foreigner. I really liked the album Foreigner 4. What was that? I don't know. Maybe that was the 80s. But I think that was before high school. You know, I really liked classic rock. When I'd come into school, the crowd that I was in was like the yearbook crowd, the The kids who worked on the yearbook. That was, I don't know, and we worked on the the school paper. And they were into, Depeche Mode and New Order were just coming out, and they might be giants, uh, Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark and Susie and the Banshees. So I kind of knew about them, but I wasn't into them. I was into Zeppelin and Who and Pink Floyd and the Beatles and the Stones. I still am. So you were you you were more into British sixties music. Yeah, and also I mean American too. American too, just because the proximity to to. Um, New Jersey meant Bruce Springsteen was really big. I wasn't into Grateful Dead. I wasn't really into Elvis, but I kind of got that Elvis and Chuck Berry were at the roots of a lot of the British stuff that they didn't come up with it on their own. Mm -hmm. And Motown. Motown was like really cool. Were you uh,
1: impacted by any of those things?
0: I was just about to say Moonlighting, the TV show is like really big and uh, was that uh, Bruce Willis? Yeah, Bruce Willis and Maddie. What was her, the actress? Uh, Shepard, Sybil Shepard. Sybil Shepard, yeah. Whoa. But, you know, I, I wasn't that cool. I, I always felt like there was stuff that was outside of my awareness that I was like, I, was, I felt like I was on the outside looking in. And I always felt like I wanted to know what other people liked so that I could like what the cool people liked. Something like that. So again, that's interesting, isn't it? Again, that part of
1: you that is... That part of you that was driven to to find out what
0: they like rather than yeah. what you liked. Sports, well, I mean, it was little, the Phillies won the World Series in 1980, if I remember right, with Mike Schmidt and Larry Bow and Pete Rose. And I really liked that. I wasn't good at sports until college. And when I started playing Ultimate in college, I came on a team that had just gone to Nationals the year before and had a pretty good chance of making it that year. Those guys the seniors and the just graduated people who were at that time, you could kind of take a class or two and still be eligible to play on that team. So the bunch of guys who had just graduated and they're taking like a one or two classes in order to be eligible. Oh man. They were all of us. When we get together, we've never met that camaraderie and the pushing each other to greatness and so fun. So the seniors and the, and the just graduated guys in that team, man, uh, February of my freshman year. So I would have been 17 years old at the time. Oh, a couple of things. Okay. Let me go earlier in the fall of that semester of that year. There was a tournament and I had a lot of work to do. So I, I wanted to support the team. So I went Saturday morning to the lobby of the dorm where the team was going to go meet and then get in the vans and drive off because tournaments were always outside of Manhattan because there's a field space in Manhattan. And this one guy, Rich comes up and he goes, where's your stuff? Where's your cleats? Where's your uniform and all that stuff? Not uniform, but it's just, you know, stuff to play in. I was like, I can't make it. I have so much work this weekend. There's no way I can make it. And he's like, what? Are you joking? And he drags me back to my dorm and has me pack up all my stuff and bring it back and gets me in the van and I go to the tournament. I never missed a tournament. I never missed a practice after that. And I was actually just emailing with Rich about this recently, telling him like how this changed my life. Because years later, my junior year, if people want to see this blog post, look up on my blog about the jalapenos and putting in my contact lenses. Because I was I, I was cooking and I forgot that. I oh no! And I can already, I can already. Yeah,
1: I can already feel and I had to put my contacts to play. And, had
0: the possibility. Yeah, my eyes. To, my you've never seen eyes so red. But I was not going to miss practice. So fast forward from February of my freshman year, this team that was really close. And was really, somehow we went to Mardi Gras in February. It was not spring break. We just took a week or two off from school and just piled in these two, a van and a car and drove down all the way to New Orleans, like 25 hour drive there. And then one guy, the captain of the team, Seth, he's from New Orleans. So we had a place, a shack to like a three room shack that like just picture 20 guys just sleeping on the floor there. And someone would wake up in the morning and be like, we were really, really tired from the day before. And someone would be like, daiquiris daiquiris. So there's a place called daiquiris. It would serve daiquiries, alcoholic beverages, no carding, 24 hours a day. And we'd go at like eight in the morning, go drink. And then we'd play practice and we went to go see the Neville's brothers and we'd go to all the parades and get all the beads. And then we went up to play the tournament in in Baton Rouge. That was, I don't know what came over us to do that. I mean, I was just following along, but ultimate. Became for a good 15 years of my life. It was one of the major things. So that sports became really big for me. It took me a long time. I don't know if I ever really got that competitive.
1: But you talked about in the first part of the interview, you talked about, you know, getting onto these teams and being very good and, you know, playing at higher levels. But the indication was that you were not sort of a
0: sportsy guy initially. Is that right? Or about- Yeah. At this time at going to Mardi Gras, I sucked. I was just, I I tagged along.
1: So when sports would happen when you were a kid, I'm talking about eight, nine, 10, 12, you know, around eight, eight. when sports would happen, how would you be? Would would you sort of slink off into the corner or, you know, would you jump in and try?
0: How would it be? In Little League and T-ball, as I remember, I would just do what they said, you know, go play that position, go play that position. I knew there were players who were the go-to guys. I wasn't picked first, but I wasn't picked last. Uh, soccer, I played a little bit, didn't really get into it. We had a neighbor down the block who was really into it, and he would like be on traveling teams, and his father would send him off to, I don't know, get really good. I never got really good. And now notice that Ultimate was like a, it's a, it's a great sport with a, an amazing community, and to play well at it, it takes a lot but it's not a mainstream sport. It's not football, basketball, hockey, track. So I was doing well. And I kind of picked an oddball thing in order to not consciously, but you know, not put myself up against major competition. I wouldn't go to the gym. I mean, I did later, but I felt like there were guys who were really good at sports and I wasn't one of them. And it took me a long time playing Ultimate before I got to be really good. I was never... The main guy on a team, but when we went to nationals, the first time at nationals, I was the freshman on the college team. But the next time I went was on a club team. It was a co-ed team, so not the level of of single sex, but still we went to nationals. I think we made quarterfinals, and I think I was a pretty solid member of that team. By that point, I really loved. That was, I mean, there was like running sprints in the rain and running stadiums by myself and training however I could. That was really glorious. But that's all much later. That's in my 20s and 30s. What was
1: the turning point to going from not really comfortable with sports to being, you know, it's part of your life?
0: Ah, there's a, a very distinct time that it happened. I mean, there was laying the groundwork with uh, running cross country in high school, but I never was in varsity, not even close. But here's what happened it was my sophomore year. We were playing, I believe, at Wesleyan in a big game, and we're, past halftime and I haven't played in any points yet. And I go up to one of the captains, there were two team captains at the time. And I say, well, the game's getting on pretty long. I haven't played any points yet. And Eli turns to me and he says, Josh, this is a very important game. We really want to win this. And it's really tight. And I don't know how to say this, but except when you cover a guy, he still gets the disc and we can't have that in this game. So I can't put you in, in this game. And up until then, I thought, if you show up, you should play. So I'm on the sideline realizing it's dawning on me that I'm not going to play in this game. And now I would say it's like, it's going under the foundation of what I'm here for. And the tears start welling up. And I realize the sideline of, of this game is not the place to be crying. So I leave and I go back to the vans and I, they're all empty because everyone's watching the game. And I get in the van and I start crying, not on purpose. And the men's team and women's teams, you'd usually, not always at the same tournaments, but at this, this time we happen to be at the same tournaments. They come back and they start getting in the van. I was like, oh, I can't be crying now. But what happened is less important as what I realized was I had to ask myself, if you play, if you show up to practice, you'll get playing time, just not in the big games. And you'll always get to play in practice because you need lots of guys there to have two teams to play against each other. Do I want to be someone who by virtue of showing up gets to play, but not in the big games? Or do I want to be someone who plays? Do not want the team to depend on me? And I said, I want to be, The latter. I want to be this. I want to get good at this. And that was a major turning point. That after that, of course, I'd like to just play, but the point is to win the last point of the season, meaning you've won nationals. That's what I'm here. Everything else is preparation for that. And I've never won nationals, but there were a couple of times when I was the lead offensive player on the team and we won tournaments. Which is kind of funny and ultimate because, especially in college, you're playing Saturday, all day Saturday, and then all day Sunday. Actually, on Sunday, it's, quarters, it's usually Saturday's pool play, and that sets you up for Sunday, which is quarter, semis, finals. If you lose a game, you're out. That means that you have, on Saturday, it's huge numbers of people, fields, like people all over the place. And then Sunday, as it's getting dark, there's like two teams left. It's totally empty. There's no fans. It's ultimate. It's not football. And everyone's tired, and but you're playing at the peak, but also like nothing left. There's a glory to that of of winning a tournament in a situation like that. And I remember. Times- so you actually
1: win. You win without the applause, without the external gratification, and you're fried. There's yeah. nothing left.
0: And you haven't done any homework. That's due the next morning.
1: Yeah, but it's it's kind of. The opposite to the way we think of championship winning, right? We think of championship winning as the biggest crowds are there. You know, you've prepped and you've you've saved every ounce of energy for that last moment to do the final run of whatever it is. And your your sport was actually kind of the opposite.
0: Yeah, this is more, this is Rocky on the art museum steps. The goal is not to get up the art museum steps. That's what he's doing at 6 a.m., but it sets up the winning in the in the ring. And you get the the other team you're often playing against the same team in the finals because the best teams tend to reach the finals together. So there's a mutual respect. Of course the other team wants to leave quickly because they got the long ride home. <laughs> yeah, there's that too.
1: So now we've gone into the the we were the heroes of your childhood, the you know, the music that was coming out of that and how that was forming you, and then sports, the awkwardness. you know. So it's, it seems very interesting to me that you've sort of fairly consistently been on the outside, one might say, to some degree, an underdog, and then you've had this level of commitment, this level of um, just drive and you've put yourself at the top, so you get to play at the top level in the ultimate. you get to you know you get to be the coach in the coaching before when we talked about in the past episode. so this it's fascinating to me that this this drive is in you do you Do you see yourself as a
0: driven person? I do now. there's a couple of other things when I get later to the early twenties would be the physicists and great scientists and that just the mind bending equations and things like that. And then some of my classmates, when the conversations that we would have, the the intellectual stimulation is just, I can't believe some of the stuff that I understood and worked on. And, and sometimes that people would, I would surprise them. I did an episode on, on one of these great triumphs of how I did on my qualifying exams at Penn and then at Columbia as you're saying that, I'm, I'm still thinking today in terms of leadership, I'm still not attracting the community. There's something in me that's putting people off that in competition, there's I think this is the right term for it, but a killer instinct to win a game. And I don't think I ever really quite got it. I'm, I'm curious to watch this Michael Jordan thing, the, the Bulls thing that ESPN is doing right now. In terms of leadership, there's something that I'm not an elite. And a friend of mine, uh, another podcaster, and he's a wrestler. In, and he talked about, he was, I think, ranked 10 in the nation as a Div 1 wrestler. At, I think it was UVA. And he's going to fight against a wrestle a number four guy. And before the match, he just says, wait a minute, I can beat this guy. I can do this. And the mental component was, it's a major, major piece. He didn't train any time between when he decided that he would change. And I haven't had that. I don't know how this will sound. I don't consider Oprah my peer yet. I don't consider, like these people that I talk about having on my podcast, I, I don't feel like I'm on their level. Do you think you need a killer instinct? That's interesting. Killer instinct, that's why I hesitated to say the term at first. It's not, it's not killer instinct. I see. There's two sides of competition. One of them is to win. The other is to reach your potential. When I say competitor, I usually mean someone who is doing whatever it takes to reach their potential. If it's a competitive sport, where there's a winner and a loser, that means you're going to win. But it's really, what's your potential, and how close can you reach it, and even surpass it? So, killer instinct is a word from the competitive, like win at all costs. But what I'm saying is, I don't, I don't know what the equivalent would be to reach your pinnacle, not the win-at-all-cost part, but the what's your potential? But to push yourself past any potential limitation. Something like that. And in this case, it's to, I don't know, there's something that I haven't gotten yet about leading others that maybe this is part of it, that I'm holding myself back because I can't, so much of my leadership practice is about openness, allowing yourself to be vulnerable. And yet there's this major component that I hardly feel like everybody has. I think everyone's had their youth issues with their parents and all that stuff. And, but I've always been scared to share mine. And so I haven't been particularly vulnerable. And yet that's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm expressing is, is so critically important. I face these vulnerabilities, but not, I haven't shared them. So I'm going I'm to go down that road here. And I want to, because I want to just pull this
1: sharp now into sharp focus. And I need you to be honest. And I need you to be vulnerable. And the question is this, as a child, what did you need that you couldn't get or couldn't get enough of? What was it that you hungered for? You might have got it, but you might have only
0: got like a little smell of it, but not quite got your teeth into it. What was it you needed? I'm sure there's lots of answers to this, but there's a major answer, which is the feeling understood. I believe that most of my family would describe me as stubborn. Mm Mm-hmm. I believe the opposite of stubborn is being understood. If you understand why someone's doing something and they stick with it and it's their hope or their dream or their great passion, then they're dedicated, they're, you know, they're driven. But if you don't get it, then they're stubborn. Like why are they doing this stupid thing? And I believe that my family saw me as probably hard-headed and so many things that made total sense to me not only didn't make sense to them but they would resist and push against it. And I always felt like, why is this not making sense? I I didn't think this way, but why am I not getting support for this? Why I'm doing what I thought would make sense to you, my parents, my brothers, my sisters, or one stepbrother. And the other thing was popularity or acceptance with, with my peers. That's probably everybody. But in my case, I mean, why is this apparent to me? Because if you read my book, Leadership Step by Step, you will see my relationship principally with my father very clearly. What this teaches you is the opposite of what I learned and what I value, what, what I do value most. I cannot overstate the power of making somebody feel understood. I, I believe this is a, an emotion that we do not have a word for just like Schadenfreude doesn't exist in English, but no one says, what is that? We get, we know what Schadenfreude, when someone explains what what that word means, we're like, oh, there's a name for that. That's cool. We don't say, I guess those Germans have an emotion that we don't. Likewise, I think the world would be a much greater place if we had a word for the feeling of being understood. I can say, I understand you, but that's not the same as you feeling understood by me. And I, I don't have it. I didn't get it growing up. I had the opposite of it growing up. I felt like I craved it. I think everybody does. And to me, in a relationship, it's what I seek to do. I have to consciously do it because it doesn't come. It doesn't feel like it comes out naturally. It comes more and more naturally all the time. It's what I look for in business relationships. It's what I look for in romantic relationships. It's what I coach. And I'm a single man because I don't. I have not gotten. There's been no woman who has. A woman who reads my book can make me fall in love with her. Just practice, especially unit four. It's like an instruction guide. To make me fall in love with you, if if that's what you want. And I love when I teach the course, especially with older professionals, because consistently they come back and they tell me, I did the exercises in one particular exercise, and it brought tears of gratitude to the eyes of the person that was leading, saying, I've never had someone treat me this way. I've never been able to do what I've always wanted to do for my reasons. And it took me. Why is leadership such a passion for me? Because I had a sense that that's what, that there was something there. And I wanted that. I wanted to get that for myself, but I can't make someone else do it with me, make me feel understood, but I can help others to do this. And I, I love enabling people to make others, the people that they care about most, feel understood about the things that they care most about. And when someone, treats me this way. And people keep coming to me and they say, "Josh, I love this. How can I get my boss to learn what you taught me?" And that's that's a tough one because you have to lead them to lead you back. But if the person hasn't asked to be led, it's it's tough. You have to bring something out of them and it might not be there. But you what you needed and couldn't
1: get or couldn't get enough of was to be understood. Uh, yeah, and then to be supported for that. Yeah, and to be supported for that. I get it. However, you and I are both on the same page around this, maybe a different book, but same page, around one cannot be understood until one is willing to understand not only others, but firstly oneself. So let's go there. What has broken you open? Because I, I my belief, we come into the world wide open and, as the world happens to us, we get sealed closed, and then events happen that break us open oftentimes those events are painful, like a broken heart or a bankruptcy or a diagnosis and sometimes they're blissful and exotic and and, and ecstatic and and we have this ecstatic experience of something that breaks us open. You know I had somebody who went through all kinds of trauma didn't break him open, and then he went to Burning Man, yeah. And Mm -hmm. Burning Man broke him open, right? So what has, and it doesn't have to be a thing, there might be several things. If there's several, we'll just sort of do them as bullet points and then we can come back to them. But is there things that have broken you open so that you could understand
0: you better? Yeah, there's a few that come to mind. I'll mention a couple. So one was uh, doing follies in business school. So follies was the class play. And a bunch of business school students acting for any, for like quality acting. But it's sketch comedy with some song and dance routines. And the audience is basically drunk. So you're going to get applause no matter what. So I start business school and I've not been in, done a class play since third grade when I was, I misbehaved and I got kicked out. And I was like, oh, great. They taught me the wrong lesson on that. But I didn't go on stage or perform for until I was like 35. So I saw Follies and I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. And I had some ideas for some sketches. Didn't think much of it. I don't know. And one day I'm sitting studying and a friend of mine says he wants to trap for follies. So it's like, oh, I got some ideas for a sketch myself. And we start talking back and forth. And then I mentioned the ideas to him and we go, okay, we, a, we got to study. We got a test coming up or whatever we were in the library for. So we start studying. And a little while later, the TA comes by for the class and says, do you guys need any help? And the TA was in follies. So we say, oh, we were talking about follies. We should be talking about business, but whatever. That's how business works. <laughs> Talk about fun stuff. And he goes, oh, what are your ideas? And the other guy says his stuff. And then, now I wasn't studying. I actually started writing out a script. I'd never written a script before. And so I start writing, and I hand it to uh, the TA guy. And he's like, this is really funny. And my friend is like, why didn't you tell me you had a script? I was like, I didn't. I just wrote it. So they both say, go try out. So the next semester, when it begins, I go to the tryouts, and they say, does anyone have any ideas? And everyone says their ideas and they vote on which ideas they're going to make, put into the show. Mine is one of them. And at the end of this meeting, they say, who wants to be in Follies? And I'm, I say, I don't want to be in it. I just wanted to write that sketch. And I say, the rule is sketches only from people who are in it. If you're in it, you got to be on stage. You can play a musical instrument. You can act, but you can dance. So this is really crappy of me. <laughs> My idea was I'll be in Follies and until like the last minute and then I'll drop out and it'll be too late for them to switch. And then my thing will be in and I won't have to be on stage. But in the course of practice, I, I enjoyed it. And then comes the day to go on stage. So there's 500 people in the audience, I'm in the wings. And the first sketch that I was on, I played a professor. And so my, my role is to come off of the wings, go, go up the steps, go and sit down, and there was going to be name tags, name cards in front of each place where the people sat. And the, I'd written my lines on the back of the name card so that if I forgot my lines, because I never got them right once in rehearsal I, and everyone on stage had filled in me for in some other different way, like I'm like the audience is not going to notice me reading the lines off the card. But somehow I delivered the lines and the, the standards are very low. So I, I got this huge laughs and for the sketch that I wrote and I felt great about it. Like I didn't, my feet didn't touch the ground for the whole evening. And this, remember I said in the, the last time when I said the things that were the greatest in my life began with my greatest anxieties. I went from ready to puke to elation like i never felt in seconds. And I was primed at that moment to look for emotional awareness and things like that. And so that primed me for when I read the game to act on that. So that was a major, major shift. Then another one was um, when I took acting classes. I, I had enjoyed watching Inside the Actor Studio and had picked up that this is after business school. I was just watching the show, I just kind of liked it. And I noticed that all these actors were, um, their social emotional skills were far beyond the social emotional skills of my business school professors, even the leadership ones. And the more that I watched, the more that I caught a pattern that they kept saying that they, Dropped out of school, never went to school, got kicked out of school. So I'd grown up thinking Ivy League, business school must be the peak. These professors must be the best. And it's dawning on me that they're not. Actually, I believe that there's a system that produced greatness. And yet this greatness came from not working with the system at all. So what's going on? So I started looking up, learning about acting, how we teach acting. And I learned about Stanislavski, and Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg and the group theater, Meisner. And I started learning more and more about them. And I started learning more about that technique. This is around 2008, 2009. A friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, his business, he saw the writing on the wall of, of 2008, 2009, The Crisis, sold his business. And I always wondered, this guy is really amazing. He's the most charismatic guy I've ever met. And he started taking acting classes. I thought, wow, he'd make a great actor. And I started asking him, about group theater stuff and and how acting worked and how acting was learned. And at one point he said, Josh, you're asking all these questions. Just take the courses. Now he was taking a two-year conservatory style learning program. I was like, I don't have two years to do this. Because I, I was asking this to improve. By this point, I'm coaching executives and maybe even teaching at NYU at this stage. It was a little before I was teaching NYU, but coaching. So I'm thinking, I can't do that. And he goes, there's a six-week summer intensive. So I said, all right. He said, I'll set you up to interview with the people there because I I know people. And so I go in, I interview, and I'm like, I'm not really wanting to be an actor, but I say, I'm going to put everything I have into this. So I said, all right, outside of a family emergency, for six weeks, I'm putting everything I have into this to the point where if I hope kind of secretly that I I love acting so much that I'm not going to do, that I'm going to give up everything else and become an actor. And I went into it with that sentiment. And that opened me up. And my courses are Meisner technique, but acting exercises, play the structure is the same, but the, the exercises are leadership exercises. And people who really do it, you open up in ways, I open up in ways. Up until that point, I was emotionally aware, but not emotionally expressive. I don't think I'm the most emotionally expressive person in the world, but I'm a lot more now than I was before. And I got so close to my acting partners. And there was a scene where at one point I realized what I had to do to cry. And I felt like this was maybe four weeks in of a six-week program. So I knew, like, if I started here, I'd reach this far, a certain distance. And I knew where I could cry on stage would take X more. And what I had in me was to do like 90% of that. And I thought, I don't want to go up there and put myself out there and not make it. And I thought, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for beyond what I think I can. And in the next couple of classes, everyone was like, is it, are you all right, Josh? Because I'm working the technique and thinking of like what is in me that I have to access and how can I draw this up? And then came the, my turn to act with a partner and I cried. I drew out what was, I used the technique and it wasn't like I chopped onions. It was, I felt the tears were genuine and totally authentic. I had to face away from the audience because if I saw someone, it would be too uncomfortable for me. And my teacher said something great at the end of that. He said, now that we've seen what you're capable of, you can never give less. You can never tell us, you can never act as if you aren't capable of that much. And leadership is to me a performance art. And what I seek in leadership well, in the environment, it's cultural shift of billions of people. But in terms of my personal experience of it, I believe that it is a performance art like acting, like singing, like playing a musical instrument. And I want when I'm acting, when I'm leading and I'm doing it well, I see how actors talk about their craft. I, I see how musicians talk about their craft, how athletes do, how military people do. And I love that. I, I'm most open when I'm doing something that the fear, the anxiety, the trepidation, the unknown of—I'm thinking now—my TEDx talk just came out recently, my third TEDx talk, and and I know I'm capable of more that will come with practice and experience, but that experience of of having one month to prepare and leading is especially. Corporate training, corporate leadership, giving a giving a keynote in front of an audience of a thousand people or five hundred people. It's one of the few artistic mediums, media where you one person writes the script, directs, acts, does everything. The only other place where I know this is stand up comedy, which is why I've done stand up. I've done open mic a few times to hone my craft but musicians generally, someone else composed it or it's a band, acting, someone else wrote the script. There's almost always something else. And why I'm talking to you about all this stuff is partly, I love it. The feeling, I mean, I'm scared, but this is the way to, I don't know. This is the way to- Well, I, again, and we're back to this to
1: this subject of opening you up, right? What opened you up? Because I think, as I said earlier, Leadership is vulnerability, and you can't really lead unless you open up. But you can't open up everybody else if you're not open. It's a game. It's bull. It's not real. But really opening up your people means you have to open up yourself, and that's the work that I love, love, love doing. Is going nitty gritty with my leaders because I can get them to open up. When they do, they become spectacular leaders. And I think it's part of the reason that we're now seeing this massive surge of executives and billionaires and millionaires and such who are going out and trying psychedelics or going to the Amazon to do ayahuasca or Cambo or one of the other psychedelic experiences.
0: If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe it in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. So you asked about things that were transformative for me. And so certainly the whole transition with the women that we talked about last time, the acting was a major piece of it. Sports was a big piece of it. And drugs is something that I've talked, I've alluded to. There's an episode I did called Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll talking about how seeing Bruce Springsteen on Broadway led me to realize I got to open up, I got to do this. My talking to you about that episode is what led you to suggest doing this. So do I want to get into ecstasy?
1: Well, I I mean, yeah, because I I think it's an important piece for the simple reason of, you know, we can think about drugs in the traditional sense. And I'm going to just say this to everybody so everybody understands about me. I am, in my world, I would legalize drugs. Why? I look at Portugal. Had a massive drug problem. They legalized everything, everything, and suddenly started making profit for the government, got people cleaned up. They don't have the crime level. They don't have the imprisonment level, and they have a much better, healthier society And because there's a couple of things going on. Psychologically, human beings want to do what we can't do. (laughs) It's the rebellion part of us, the the adolescent part of us. But the other thing of it is that what you begin to realize is, particularly in people who are a little bit older, who have fully developed brains, you know, plus 26 years old, is that a lot of people who take quote-unquote drugs, a very weird word because pharmacological drugs are definitely the biggest problem in the world, but the biggest cartel in the world is Bayer. But let me just come back on it and say that older people, meaning 26 plus, are usually looking to do drugs, not for a party. There's a self-exploration that has uh, friends of mine who are Navy SEALs going to the Amazon to take ayahuasca, to do cambo, to do peyote, to do these experiential drugs, including ecstasy, which in my experience, by the way, saying all those things, um, have I done all those things? I have. Do I do those things? No, they're not party for me, but they were part of my journey and they helped me to explore different parts of myself and understand parts of myself and very much look into the shadow. And if you're going to be a great leader, you've got to look into your shadow self and you've got to explore your fears including the fears of the good stuff because many leaders are afraid of their own of love they're afraid of uh of intimacy so you know you may have taken that drug for the reason of a party and then discovered something else all is all together that's why i think it's important for us to
0: go there josh so as i mentioned i guess i grew up every now and then there'd be a joint at a party and i try it and that never really did anything for me. I, I would I'd smoke it and then I'd start wondering, why is everyone trying to read my mind? And I would go over the corner of the room and and like hide out and think, don't do this anymore. And then maybe a year would pass and I'd try it again and the same thing would happen. I'd be like, why do people like this? And uh, in college for fun, we took shrooms once, maybe a couple of times and it was fun. Sure. Then I always associated drugs with cool kids. And so I always felt like, that was something I was on the outside looking in. So fast forward to after my, now I'm in graduate school, nearing, this is six months before my, getting my PhD. So it's the late nineties. I'm starting my company. I've just run a marathon. I just come back from giving a presentation on my thesis work that was basically, I'd shown the results of, of all the work that I'd done. They'd, they'd approved. And so I just had to write up my thesis. One of the girls that I mentioned, the one, the uh, ultimate player, she and I broke up, but we'd kind of gotten back together again. And somehow she and I didn't get along this time, but I got connected with her little sister. This sounds ominous in some weird way and probably was. Her little sister was going out to this club Twilo in New York, and she invites me to go with her in their crowd, and there's going to be some ecstasy there. And I've never taken it. I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. I've never danced in a crowd. I'm scared of how to dance. I'm scared of being laughed at. And... For years, I told people I wanted to go clubbing. That was actually something I, I thought of, but didn't get to mention of not heroes, but some, role models. Like New York in the late 80s and 90s, I knew about tunnel and limelight places like that. And I had friends who would go there, but I would never get to go. And I guess all I had to do was ask, but I never did. And when I would express wanting to go, people would always say, oh, you wouldn't like it. I never got that. I was like, of course I would like it. But I guess they saw a scientist that would, I don't know. I don't know what they saw, but... They thought well, they I saw really, the image again. Yeah. And I think that they really were doing me a favor by saying, you wouldn't want to go. I get invited. I go. And now another thing I, I ascribed this to my dad, but I think actually over the years I've recognized I may have picked it up from him, but I think a lot of people have this, which is an accounting of if you work hard, you should get a reward for it, but you shouldn't get a reward unless you work hard. And so the work and the fun have to balance each other out. Another reason why I would pick going to physics, because there's such hard work. There must be a big payoff at the end. The payoff kept not coming, but I knew it was going to come at some point. And also, I learned about ecstasy that it was the opposite of addictive. What I learned is that if you took it, eventually it stops working. And I had a fear of being becoming addicted. I wouldn't want to take something that was addictive. And so I understood that this was something that would not be that. Yeah, we'd have a high tachyphalactic response. Meaning that your
1: body, the, the you chase the dragon and it's like, man, this is terrible. I just don't feel good. Uh, I end up feeling tired and uh, drained and
0: not exuberant. Yeah, I didn't know the details, just that people would, it would work less and less over time. I go and we get in. I mean, she was she was a really attractive young woman and she had some friends who were all really fun and we all eventually became really good friends. But at this time I was just going for the first time One of the group knew the owner of the club, so we got right in, didn't have to pay, and it's packed. After a while, they hand me a pill, and I'm like, I decided, you know, I'm going to try this. An hour passes, no effect, and eventually it starts kicking in. And people who know the experience know the experience. It was just one of the most amazing experiences. It's called ecstasy, but at the beginning, the first couple times you take it, the feeling of empathy and compassion and connection and, and mutual support and understanding is just unbelievable. And I could go out and dance and I, I'm sure I look crappy, but I felt everyone was together. And I mean, people who know it, I think uh, this will probably sound redundant, but for me, it was so much fun. And I felt like I, I walked around the club at one point feeling like this is why I worked so hard. This is the payoff for all that hard work. And I was accepted and together. And fun and all of its design with the lights and the music and the everything is that place was a magical place. People who know it like it, and it was Sasha and Diwi to Twilo and people who know what that means means it, like that's a lot. Mm-hmm. But there are a few things. One was that this fun did not take any work. I paid 20 bucks, got a pill, and it disconnected the need to work hard to enjoy life. I could just have fun. I could just have fun without the work. And there wasn't anything wrong with that at all. Another thing that took me a while to put into words was that the way that it made me feel, I could, you, at this place, like many places, you could just sit down and talk to the person next to you and maybe they're a stockbroker, maybe they're a janitor, and you just talk and have a great connection and dance together and whatever. And you make friends really quickly and so forth. And everyone gives you other the big hugs and stuff like that. Well, the hugs and stuff was kind of superficial, but I was connecting with people in ways that I never had before those emotions, people say, yeah, but they're fake. They're not fake. I was feeling those emotions. They were brought on by a different reason than usual. They weren't brought on by the feeling, by the activity that normally brings them on, but I felt those emotions. And I and they weren't new emotions or more extreme. They were emotions that I was capable of feeling and they were connections that I was capable of making. And if I could make them then, I could make them other times. And I don't really connect with the ayahuasca, LSD, microdosing, that stuff. I went to to Burning Man and I really, it was not a great experience for me. And I believe that I knew what it was about and got it. But this part was, it was the connecting with people. And I think that with this, maybe because with the physics and I think a lot of what I see other people getting, I think I've gotten those things elsewhere. The, some stuff about the, cosmology and consciousness stuff like that but the connecting with other people and the understanding this is the first time I've connected at the same time the, the wishing to feel understood and that experience of feeling understood and also under feeling I understood others and all that mutual support and then I was in with the cool crowd I was with these really cool people because we knew the owner and you know we generally didn't have to pay years later, oh man, what this led to? My art that I became, I could walk up to a club and just say who I was, and they would like clear a path. How many people are with you? You're all coming in, no problem. So this wasn't Studio 54, and I was not some impresario, but I was pretty important. How do I put it? Because there's so many people. I don't want to say I'm like a celebrity, but I was I was pretty accepted in this in this crowd, and that led to me showing artwork of mine at Art Basel Miami Beach. In Miami, people knew who I was. It was kind of cool. And I knew that I was capable of feeling this support and connection. The drugs merely opened the door. And it certainly gave me that because I ended up going to that club like twice a month for a couple of years until it eventually closed. And I knew most of the time, you know, somewhere on Friday afternoon, we start calling each other and who's doing what, and are we, how are we getting together. But every now and then, I don't know, all my friends would be out of town. I knew that if I went, I'd just walk in the door. It wouldn't be long before I'd see a few people I knew and I'd be, or meet some new people I never knew before. Never did that before. It's fascinating. I, you
1: know, One of the things that I I've spoken to a lot of my friends and my clients about is that when people have asked me about doing the drugs, and I said, listen, I understand the neuroscience of it, and I'm fascinated by the neuroscience of it, But the simplicity of it is that the best pharmacy in the world already exists inside of your head. And you don't actually get high on the drug. The drug is a key that opens a lock that then gives you access to your own neurochemistry that floods your system in a certain way. And the truth of the matter is once the key has unlocked the gate, you can relock it or you can reopen it. And some people will need multiple times to open the lock to realize they don't have to keep locking it. And then other times, other people will only open it with the drug. And some people will go, oh, I've been there, did that. It was great. It's cool. So I can access through my neural pathways, my experiences with those some of those psychedelic substances and take me there if that's where I want to go. And it's not, I mean, there's so much illusion around and and not just illusion but propaganda around addiction that we have been so misled unmasked to and if you actually do you uh, meaning the listener if you do the research you will discover that actually 99 percent of the drugs are not what they say they are that there is a either a um placebo, nocebo response, meaning placebo is positive, nocebo is negative response based on your own social conditioning to the substance. And moreover, that if you do the more recent research in the last 10 years, you'll discover that the cure for addiction is community, not rehab, but community. That the reason that most of the people go off on crazy destructive tangents with these things is because they don't have community and we are horribly, horribly lonely. And that is what's pushed it up. So when we add community, people stop going down those roads. So then you can have this thing of exploring a greater dimension of oneself that is possible beyond the confines of the conditioning. And as Timothy Leary said, um, when he first started doing LSD and became a, was a professor and started talking about it with then psychiatrists, but later became Ram Dass, he said, take LSD and watch the walls melt. People took LSD and looked at the walls and watched them melt. He was never talking about external yeah. walls. Yeah. If you read Neuropolitique and you read some of Leary's work, which was phenomenal, you'll realize he was talking about the walls of your own conditioning, the walls of your own limitations. So for me, again, you know, you have this nervousness about talking about being a pickup coach and being a, you know, all these things are expanses of us that uh, we go out in the world to do that actually are the return. They they are the prodigal son of ourselves that returns, um, having been out in the world. So you know that story of the prodigal son in the Bible is a fascinating story because the other son who 's been dedicated been a good son, stayed the other son, who was the bad son, goes out in the world, and he 's welcomed back with coats and gold and all those things and it 's this willingness to go out in the world and be vulnerable, the willingness to explore oneself through what the world will give you, which is often a kick in the nuts and a punch in the face and ecstasy and and expensive experiences that brings you back to lead at a far deeper level than you can inside of your protective bubble which is full of bias So I'm really grateful that you have shared this experience that you have been willing to go to this because it is again another expansion of us seeing who Joshua is because I said we're all formed in our environment. But to see this, the vulnerability of what you really needed was to be understood. And what you've actually been doing is trying to understand so that you could be understood in the world. And I think that that is pretty spectacular in what you bring to leadership.
0: Technical issues led to the connection dropping right there, and we couldn't connect. So sorry that it stopped suddenly, but I'm relieved to have shared about how I grew from this experience. Anyway, the experience of connecting with people from ecstasy, MDMA, predicated and enabled my leadership of connection, empathy, understanding, and other social and emotional skills. Dove nailed at the end how important feeling understood and making others feel understood is to me, as I rarely feel understood. I have to share how meaningful in my coaching practice it is that clients regularly tell me that people that they lead using the techniques that I teach them cry tears of gratitude, saying sometimes, that no one has ever listened to them so much and made them feel so understood that they could at last devote themselves without inhibition to act with passion on what they want to work with passion on. I love being able to enable people to give that to others. And I reiterate that despite hundreds of people that I've taught to lead this way, no one has devoted themselves to lead me back this way or make me feel understood, despite my telling them that simply doing the exercises in my book verbatim will do it. I'm sad to say not my family, my friends, my managers, my girlfriends, no one. I don't know what's wrong. It feels kind of, uh, I don't know, sad for me to say it, that what I want most, and I tell people how to give it to me, I don't get. Anyway, back to this episode. I finally started entering the inside crowd in New York City clubs, also through playing Ultimate. And after decades, I finally started replacing insecurity and tentativeness with security and confidence. Ultimately, my experience with ecstasy revealed to me emotional intensity that I, from then on, knew I could recreate if I tried, as could anyone. As a result, I've created a lot of love in my life. I had this experience with ecstasy a few years before learning attraction and seduction, what I talked about in the first episode, and that world took a few years of practice still after in order to be able to create emotional intimacy with women. But all of what I've shared so far, what I felt until this point of speaking with Dove made me fear opening up, it all just allowed me to surface the real source of my fear, being a victim of what could only be called sexual assault knowing other men who are also victims of sexual assault and the fear of mainstream society supporting, well, not supporting men in situations like this. It's been very difficult for me to even face myself. And this is what I talk about in the next episode. So to clarify, I'm not afraid about the truth. I'm afraid of hashtag movements that, well, listen to the third episode and I'll get into more of that. When we reconnected after the drop call, I asked Dove at this point for a third episode. In that episode, I described what the first two episodes opened me up to share. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodekcom donate. Again, that's joshuaspodekcom donate.